hello and let me add my welcome to you. Welcome to Pathway. We're so glad that you're here. Uh, and welcome to you who are in the room, but also those, if you didn't know, who watch in different places. Uh, whether you're watching online or in our classic service or uh, down at the Moon Campus, hello to all of you as well. Uh, Merry belated Christmas, I guess, however that works in this in-between time. Um, Happy New Year, all, all that kind of stuff. Uh, my name is Ben Marshall, and I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And uh, if you didn't know, uh, but I think many of you probably do, I have three daughters, and uh, there's going to be a picture here up on the screen. These are my daughters, and uh, the oldest, her name is Aaliyah, and she's six years old, and then our second oldest is Sophia. We call her Sophie, and uh, she'll be three in the end of January, January 30th, and then our youngest, her name is Eliana, or Ellie, is what we call her, and she, she's a little over three months old. And uh, my girls love to read books. Uh, when my oldest was young, basically, like, we, we could just sit there for hours just reading books and reading books and reading books, uh, and now they're, they're kind of the same way, and they love to read books, and we read books before rest time, like before nap time, before bedtime, all those kinds of things, and inevitably, like, they're the ones who, who kind of choose the book to read and, and things like that. They'll, they'll choose the longest book they can find, right? Well, they had a habit when they were young they, they kind of grew out of this a little bit because they kind of began to understand a little bit more. But they had a habit of going to get a book, and they would run back to their bookshelf, and, and they would grab like this huge book off the shelf, right? Just find the biggest one they could, and they would grab it and say, I got my Bible. And so they would bring this, and, and really it's just, it's a fairy tale story, right? This isn't a Bible, although it has like these nice golden edges and things. Or it would be like, hey, let's read some Berenstein Bears or some Daniel Tiger or whatever it is. They would grab this big book, and they would call it their Bible, and it was very interesting, and, uh, and hopefully they—I think they have grown out of that so far, because they understand it's not actually a Bible. But I think sometimes we can be like that as well, uh, if you'll allow me to say that. We can be like kids sometimes in, in, in our understanding of the Word of God. And sometimes we can, we can actually look at the Word of God and, and not really consider all the differences between the Word of God and, and a different kind of book. Right? Sometimes we, we look at this book, and, and it's one of those that maybe uh, you, you view it more as like a, an English textbook, or you view it as uh, one of those books that you had to read in, in high school English class that you just really did not enjoy. You wanted to get the Cliffs Notes for, or the Spark Notes, whatever brand you went for, uh, to kind of cheat a little bit and get the main idea of the summary. I know none of you did that. I certainly never did that either. But we look at the Bible— and, and we don't always consider the implications of how this is a different and distinct kind of book that we get to read and we get to know our God through. There's something undeniably unique about this Word of God. Apologist and Bible scholar Josh McDowell wrote this. He said, The Bible tells a story, a huge story an overarching story that ultimately ties together and gives meaning to everything in the entire universe and beyond. Within this grand epic, we find a specific story about the human race, how and why we were created, how we went wrong, and God's rescue plan to restore us to his original intent. When we study and read the Bible as a worldview book, we are able to relate the great universal truths of Scripture to our everyday lives. 
And that's ultimately how we are to read this book. The Bible is meant to shape and to cultivate our worldview. The way we see the world around us, the way we live in this world, the way we engage in the world, the way we think about it, the way we understand it, the way we perceive the world around us, we're supposed to look at it through the lens of Scripture. But before we can make anything our worldview, we need to understand what it is. We need to make sense of it. We need to ask some questions and maybe put it through some tests to to see if it can stand the test of, of allowing it to be something that we can actually have as the foundation of our lives. Is this something something that can stand the test of real life? Can it stand the weight of that test? We ask questions about where did it come from and how did it come together and why don't we add or take away from it? How can we trust that the Bible is actually the Word of God, this authoritative Word of God, and not merely the writings of just random people over the course of some years? And we know looking at all all the evidence that the Bible has has gone through this test and and many other tests over centuries and has stood stood firm through all of those tests— it still stands strong. It's the best-selling book of all time. Most other books have their, their rankings in like the millions. Uh, the Bible has sold billions and billions of copies. Uh, and so it's by, by far the, the best-selling book of all time, and, and one that is still relevant and true and, and sufficient and necessary and applicable for our lives today. So today and over the next couple of weeks, as uh, Steve had mentioned, uh, we are going to be going through a series kind of talking about making sense of the Bible. And as we hope to make sense of the Bible, we just thought, hey, why not call it that? We're going to make sense of the Bible. So our series is called Making Sense of the Bible. And we're going to specifically in our sermon today talk about who wrote it, how we got the Bible, and uh, where it came from, and how it was put together. Basically, we're going to look at the origin story of the Scriptures. So we're going to call today's sermon Origin Story. Now, in Origin Story, it gives you the background to something. You're able to look at the background to something, and Disney, if, if you uh, follow Disney and, and what they do, they are making millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars telling origin stories. It's not just like everybody all together, but now they can, they can bring it down into like, okay, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Okay, the Mandalorian. Okay, we're going to tell the story of like every individual character in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and we're going to make hundreds of millions of dollars every single time we, we produce one. It's a great technique. And so they tell these origin stories, and, and why do we flock to these origin stories? It's because it helps us to understand who this character is. It gives us background insight into what kind of brought them to where they are today and and the struggle and the tension of this character. And so we get to understand more about them. These origin stories really grab our attention. They help us understand how, how this character was formed, how they were influenced, and it led them to become what they are today. So when we talk about the origin story of the scriptures, we're talking about the same kind of thing. Who wrote it? Where did it come from? How did we get it? And how did it become what it is today? This, this living word of God that, that we can hold in our hands, that we, that we can go to a store and buy, and we can bring into our home and read it and study it and live it out. Knowing the origin story of something tends to change our approach to it. When we begin to understand the background behind something and its origin story, we we tend to respond differently than when we didn't know that story beforehand. Sometimes it, it helps us to extend more grace to someone when we understand where they came from. 
right? It helps us to extend maybe a little bit more trust towards something when we understand where it came from or the, the origin story behind it, or maybe less trust behind the origin story behind where it came from. Knowing the origin story of something tends to change our approach. And so that pretty much brings us to our main idea and, and the only point. If you have your pathway notes, you can pull those out. Our main point for today, and, and the only blank there on your handout, uh, is this main point. What we want to understand is that our approach to the Bible will determine our application of it. Our approach to the Bible will determine our application of it. Again, our approach to the Bible will, will determine our application of it. So how do you approach the Bible. When you think about the Bible, what is your reaction to it? Well, one approach could be approaching the Bible as an old, irrelevant book that was helpful for a certain group of people at a certain time in history, uh, in a certain location geographically, and, and it was good for them, and, and it was helpful for them, and it was relevant for them, but today it's kind of old and irrelevant to my life in the 21st century America that we live in. This is the approach to Scripture that, that would make it almost seem laughable or, or even downright foolish to base the foundation of our life on the Scriptures. You could approach the Bible as a moderately useful book that maybe makes a marginal difference in your life. It's got some good ethical, moral teachings in it, some good principles to live by. And, and so every once in a while, you pick it up or you hear some things or maybe you come to church and, and you get a little bit of it. You get just like a, a little bit of a taste of what the scriptures is. And when you get that taste, you're like, oh, that was good. Uh, I, I could use some more of that, but like maybe not yet. Maybe not right now. Maybe I'll wait a little bit until my next time uh, to, to try some of this. And, and so you have this, this approach that, that really is apathetic towards the scriptures. It doesn't really view it as, as having all that much power or still even relevance to at least daily life. Maybe we go to it when uh, circumstances are particularly challenging or dire or whatever it might be, but it's not something that we use every single day. So we approach it somewhat uncaringly or maybe unconvinced that the scriptures are the inspired Word of God. You could approach the Bible as the authoritative, accurate, relevantly applicable Word from God to His people, revealing His heart toward you and His desire that you would know Him through the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the approach to the Scriptures that, that holds the Word of God with reverence and awe and respect and honor and, and interprets all of life through the lens of Scripture. Instead of our experience determining what the Scriptures mean, our Scripture actually is the lens through which we see and understand the life and experience that we have. And so this is our approach to the Scriptures. This is the approach that the ones who, who brought these scriptures to us, who, who copied these scriptures, brought to us. The, you could go back and research um, the, the intensity with which the scribes would actually sit and copy the Word of God. And the reverence and the awe and the respect that they gave to the Word of God. Down to the, to the point where if a scribe was going to write the name of God, he would sit down his pen or his quill, whatever he was writing with. He would set down his writing utensil. He would go and he would ceremonially cleanse himself. Then he would come back, get a new quill, some new ink, and write the name of God. Just for one word. 
because of the awe and the reverence and the respect that he had for the word of God and the name of God. So there are certainly more approaches than, than the three that we laid out here, and, and you may have a different approach to the scriptures, but ultimately your approach to the word of God is going to determine your application of it. And our hope is that through this series that, that it will lead you to a place where, where your, your approach will be one that, that leads you to a greater understanding of what the scriptures are, the reality that we can trust them and, and grow in you a desire to know the word of God, to study it, and to live it out as the very words of God. So let's jump into some of this origin story of the scriptures. There are different names given to the Bible. It could be the, the Holy Scriptures, the Holy Bible, the Word of God, the scriptures, God's Word, God's Holy Word, all these different names given to it. But as we look into this book, first we ask the question, what is actually in this book? What is contained within it? Well, within this book, there is a collection of actually 66 different books. If you didn't know that, we're going to get into some facts and some different things that, that may seem a little bit, I don't know, sometimes facts can, can feel a little bit dry. It's like, okay, we're just going to rattle off a checklist of, of some facts. But when you really consider some of the implications of this, it, it really just blows your mind. These are things that I studied uh, even in my undergrad in college. And so that was like I don't know, 10 or 11 years ago that I was like studying some of this. And uh, I realized that just aged me and dated me. But, you know, you can do the math later and, and it's okay. But when I was studying in college, these are things that we even talked about. And, it, and it, even though I'm like— 10 or 12 years removed from that, it still is fascinating to me, some of these facts and, and the reality contained within the truth of these things. So it's a collection of 66 different books split into two different testaments. You might know these as the, the one that, that's kind of older is called the, the Old Testament, and the one that's a little bit newer is called the New Testament. We're very original in names, right? The Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament has 39 books contained within the Old Testament canon, and the New Testament has 27 books contained within the New Testament. This Bible was written over a period of about 1,500 years, from about 1,400 B.C. until A.D. 100, from the the time of Moses to the death of John. And, and so in that span, it's about 1,500 years while, while Scripture was being written. And it was written over that course of time by a little bit more than 40 different authors. These authors wrote during different time periods and different eras and during times of war, during times of peace. They, they wrote when they were in, in the heights of joy. Some of them wrote from the depths of despair. If you read through the Psalms, you see David was just kind of all over the place with some of this. Like one day he was in the heights of joy, the next day he was in the depths of despair, kind of showing us the, how, how human emotion can vacillate pretty quickly. Uh, but writing during times of confusion and uncertainty and doubt and, and crying out with these desperate questions to God of wondering, where are you? And then other times knowing with certainty, here is where you are with me. Right? When we look at the scriptures, we see all this contained in there. They, they wrote these books from three different continents, in Asia and Africa and Europe, and they were written in, in three different languages, in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. The Old Testament was primarily written in Hebrew, though there's some Aramaic thrown in there as well. The New Testament was primarily written in Greek, although there's some Aramaic in there 
as well. So these three different languages. It was written in a variety of literary styles. If you look at the scriptures, not everything can be read the same because there's different genres, and you read different genres differently. You read a metaphor differently than you do literal truth, right? You need to read these things differently. And so the Bible was written in poetry with historical narrative. It was written in song. It was written in, in romance. It was written in letters and biographies and autobiographies and laws and prophecies and parables and, and more different literary styles. And you would think that this amount of time and these number of authors and different languages and different moods and different locations geographically and, and all these kinds of things, you would think that there would be maybe some inconsistency behind the message of the Word of God. Now, if you have ever played the game Telephone, you know it, it doesn't take long for that message to change. But the error of, of telephone is like telephone, you only can hear the, the phrase or, or the, the saying one time, and then you try to pass it down the line and try to remember what was said, hear what was said. But here was the, the written word of God that they could go back to over and over and over and over again and would memorize and study and know intimately and deeply. And so when we look at the word of God, we know that even though there's, there's 66 books, over 1,500 years, over 40 authors, um, the story is consistent from Genesis to Revelation, from in every single book of the Bible. We know there's one consistent theme, and that theme continues to point us back to Jesus. We know that, that this, this arc of Jesus goes from beginning all the way through to the end. And when you're able to read Scripture with the understanding that, that this is communicating something about Jesus, it's communicating that Jesus is a better king, that Jesus is a better sacrifice, that Jesus is, is everything that is better that we could ever imagine. We see how things fall apart in the Old Testament when we're left to our own devices. We see that, that the sacrificial system could only go so far, but then we see in Jesus the sacrificial lamb that took away the sins of the world, that he died once for all. Like all these things point to Jesus, this consistent theme all throughout that doesn't contradict itself, that has one consistent message of God revealing himself to his people, revealing himself in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, revealing himself by his spoken word, by his written word, and by his son Jesus, who is actually called in the Gospel of John, called the Word. God continues to reveal himself. He reveals himself in, in what some scholars call natural or general revelation, revealing himself in his creation. Uh, Romans 1 talks about this. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. And then God goes beyond this general or natural revelation into what is called special revelation, where God actually distinctly makes himself known through his spoken word, through his prophets, and through the written word of God. God specifically makes himself known. So who are some of these authors? We have authors from Moses to King David to prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah to, to the tax collector Matthew to the persecutor turned pastor Paul. All these different authors over the course of time. The half-brother of Jesus, James, wrote a book. He actually became a pastor of a church in Jerusalem. And these authors were, were from every walk of life, many different locations and, and backgrounds and upbringing and education levels and, and life experiences. They were warriors and, and shepherds and poets and kings and educated and uneducated fishermen, poor, wealthy, like every, like across the, the whole spectrum were these authors of Scripture. 
So how can we trust that these authors of Scripture, these human authors, were, were telling a consistent message, were speaking the, the things that God had given to them to write down? Well, the authors of Scripture themselves made some claims about how they wrote. One clear passage on this comes from 2 Timothy three sixteen to 17 It deals with the reality that, that though the physical authors were human, they were inspired by God to write in a unique way for a unique purpose. They wrote in a way that, that you and I never could in this inspired-by-God way. There's a unity here between what we call divine revelation and human authorship. And so Paul, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, writes this to his son in the faith, Timothy. He wrote, All Scripture, which for Paul would have meant the entirety of the Old Testament, understood already as sealed in this canon of Scripture, these 39 books of the Old Testament, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This idea of God breathe is the reality that the Word of God is inspired by God. He, he inspired these people to, to write down the very Word of God. God breathed this out. Another one of these human authors, Peter, one of the three best friends of Jesus, he wrote this in his letter, 2 Peter, for, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. He says this, already heading off the idea that like they maybe made some of this stuff up. Maybe they made some of these stories up. It seems kind of crazy what happened, but here he says with clarity, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. It wasn't just something that they had heard about. It wasn't something their crazy uncle had, had mentioned at a family get-together. It was something that they had seen and witnessed with their own eyes. And when he was writing this, there would have been other people who would have been able to corroborate that same story and say, hey, he wasn't there by himself. I was there too. Oh, I was there too. Oh, I was there too. Oh, I was there too. And so as he's writing, there would have been people there who could have been like, hmm, you kind of made that up actually, didn't you? And he's like, no, you were there and I was there. We know this is true. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. He's talking about this time where Peter, James, and John went up on the mountain with Jesus, and Jesus was transfigured before them, and, and God is speaking to them. Like, they had this crazy, incredible experience, and Peter's talking about how he heard the voice of God on that sacred mountain. We also, in verse 19, he says, we also have this prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And then verse 20 and 21, he says this, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so we see here the clear reality that this didn't just come from something that Peter made up, but he says very specifically that it didn't come about by my own interpretation. It didn't come from my will, but they spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
The Apostle Paul wrote in another letter to the church in Galatia, in Galatians 1, verses 11 through 12, he said, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. It was a message received that he had to deliver. It was a message given to him by Jesus that he had to write and speak and preach about. So as we talk about the, the who wrote scripture, the answer is, is not just one human being, but the answer is always a specific human carried along by the Holy Spirit wrote the words that God breathed out. Right? There's this unity between the human author and the divine inspiration. A specific human carried along by the Holy Spirit wrote the words that God breathed out. Kevin DeYoung, a, a pastor and author, he, he wrote this. He said, The phrase concursive operation is often used to describe the process of inspiration, meaning that God used the intellect, skills, and personality of fallible men to write down what was divine and infallible. The Bible is, in one sense, both a human and a divine book. Sean McDowell, a renowned apologist and Christ follower, he wrote this. He, he said, God breathed out his words to men who in turn wrote them down. These men were not God's mindless dictation machines, nor were they placed in a hypnotic state to transmit God's words in writing. Rather, God revealed to their minds what he wanted them to write, and they, as his willing servants— put into writing what he wanted them to say. These men used their own writing skills and talents, but they were very cognizant that the thoughts and words they were writing came directly from God. So this unity between the human authorship and the divine inspiration, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, they wrote down the words that God breathed out to them. Now, you may be wondering, okay, there's 40-plus authors over the course of 1,500 years, and God used their, their personalities and their writing skills to put together the Word of God, but how did we get the Bible as it is today? My Bible's written in English. I don't know about yours. It's on paper that's actually, like, very, very thin um, in a tiny font. I don't know why it's so tiny all the time, but it, it's a very small font. Like, how did I get this Bible here in my hands today? How can we just go to a bookstore and then purchase a Bible and know it's got, okay, this one has 66 books in it. This is the, the right one. Uh, you know, maybe there's some other ones that have some other books in it. Like, how do we decide on 66? Where did this come from? Old Testament, New Testament, all that kind of stuff. How do we know the Bible's finished? How do we know that, that somebody might not have a, a word from God and write it down and add it to the scriptures? Like, is that even possible? And so these are good questions, and I'm glad that you asked them. Uh, so we're going to take a look at, at some of these questions, and, and this brings us into what is called the, the canonicity of Scripture. And so we're going to talk about canon. The Bible is also called the canon, like the Old Testament canon and the New Testament canon. So when we talk about canon, what are we talking about? Are we talking about the, the camera? Like I have a canon at home, um, and it takes some pretty good pictures. Um, no, we're not talking about that. Are we talking about maybe the, the old weapon that Captain Jack Sparrow used on the Black Pearl? No, we're not talking about that kind of canon. But what we are talking about is what is defined actually as a measuring rod. It is something to measure up to something else. And so you see uh, up on the screen, that is a, a measuring rod. And so they would have, what they would have taken in ancient uh, Near East, they, they would have taken a, a, a reed, and they would have marked different indications of, of length on a reed and used that as a measuring stick. And so when we talk about the canon, it was actually comes from the root word of reed, and it was used as a measuring rod. And it came to mean standard. 
As applied to scripture, the canon means an officially accepted list of books. They basically looked at the books to see if they would measure up to the tests of being divinely inspired by God. And so the canon of scripture that we have that's recognized and accepted as the inspired word of God, what we know today as these 66 books of the, the Bible, the, the Old Testament and the New Testament. So the early church, basically, like, they, they would run the scripture through a series of tests to determine, is this the inspired word of God? What we do know is that the, uh, the early church did not, did not determine what was or was not inspired. Instead, they, they took these letters that had been written, they took these words of God that had been written, they took these uh, letters and biographies and gospels and, and all these things, and they read them and they ran them through certain tests to, to determine if this is truly the inspired word of God. So they affirmed what was noticed and and known as true, what could be trusted. And so they they recognized or affirmed which books were the inspired, God-breathed word of God. And so they put them through the tests. So some of these tests that that they would filter some of these books through, they filtered all these books through, the the tests for them. The first one was, is it authoritative? Does it carry with it the the weight of the word from God? There had to be some some gravitas to what was written. We, We see often from the writings of of Moses or the prophets that they they would literally say like the Lord said you have heard it said like the Lord said and and so they would directly quote words from the Lord did it carry this this claim to authority and this claim to divine inspiration scripture had to pass the test of is it authoritative Another one they looked at was authorship. Was it written by an apostle or prophet of God or someone closely connected with one or more of the apostles or prophets? The authorship of this is is very important. And so uh, a book in the Bible had to have had the authority of a spiritual leader of Israel. The Old Testament, we see that there's prophets and kings and judges and scribes that are writing in Scripture or uh, apostles are are writing in the New Testament, the the testimony of one of the the apostles of Jesus. Um, And so we we know that like your Uncle Joe couldn't just like write some words down on a napkin and say like, oh yeah, God spoke to me when I was in the restaurant eating that pie and, uh, and, and, you know, this is Scripture now. Like that's not true because he's not an apostle and uh, he's pretty far removed from uh, the, the, the time when Jesus lived on this earth. And so that's actually not going to count at all as scripture. And so things were run through the test of, uh, like, the authorship test. Uh, then they would go through, is it, is it authentic? Was the message consistent with other recognized scripture? And so the Old Testament, by the time the New Testament was written, the Old Testament had already been sealed as scripture. And so anything in the New Testament couldn't contradict what the Old Testament said. It had to be a consistent message. And so this authenticity was one of message. A a piece of scripture couldn't contradict another piece of scripture. If there was a a discrepancy, then it couldn't pass that test. And so they looked at, is it, is it authentic? Does it, is it consistent with other recognized scripture? And so the Old Testament provided a litmus test for the New Testament scriptures. Um, then they run, run it through a question of, is it, is it dynamic? Does it clearly demonstrate God's life-changing power and presence? Is it evident that there's power behind these words, that, that when you read these words, you are changed? Like when you read these words, you can see and understand, as Hebrews says, uh, that this is living and active, and it has the, this power to the depth of these words. It's not just reading a normal book. It's not looking at, okay, five-minute Berenstein Bear stories. It, it's looking at, okay, this is the Word of God. And then they looked at it 
uh, was it received by others? Was it widely accepted and used by believers from an early date? Was it known that there's something different about this writing? It wasn't just a, a letter from your mom that she sent uh, to you while you were away at school. This is the, contains something much, much deeper and meaningful than that. Was it widely accepted and used by believers from an early date? There were eyewitnesses account that were being made, and, and so, uh, you know, if, if that didn't pass the muster, then, then it wouldn't have passed this test. and wouldn't be part of our scripture. Um, we also see that, that even internally, we see Jesus quoted frequently from the Old Testament. And so Jesus in the New Testament is even affirming and recognizing the Old Testament scriptures as legitimate as the Word of God. And so we know that over the course of time, these were accepted into the Bible as we have it today. Only 66 books were affirmed into the scriptures, the 39 of the Old and the 27 of the New. Um, the Old Testament was affirmed somewhere between the 400 B.C. and 150 B.C., uh, and so it was kind of set in the 39 books there. And then the New Testament uh, was unofficially recognized as early as AD 100, but really there were some church councils that happened in, in Hippo and Carthage in AD 393 and 8397, if you want those dates, and look all that up. Um, but that, that really affirmed, like, hey, these are the 27 books that pass the muster, that pass the test, that are accepted in to the New Testament scriptures that are affirmed as inspired words of God. Now, what we do know is that there were also other books that weren't accepted. We know that there are other books that, that weren't affirmed in the same way, that didn't pass the test of God breathed. In fact, we know that the Apostle Paul even wrote other books and other letters to other churches that we don't have in our Bibles. Why is that? Well, they didn't pass the test. We know that there are other books even uh, called the Apocrypha that, that didn't pass the test as well. And so we, we understand that there's, there's these books that were written kind of during the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There was this period of 400 years where it seemed like God was silent, the, the Word of God wasn't uh, active at that time. And, and so these books were written during those 400 years between the end of Malachi and beginning of Matthew. And, and so th there were these books that were written, and they had to determine, is this biblical? Is this scripture? Do we look at this as scriptures? And so what they did is they ran it through the test, and they determined, no, it doesn't line up with all of these criteria to be accepted into the Word of God as we know it today. Now, the Apocrypha is actually a part of the Roman Catholic Bible, and so that's why there's some differentiation between number of books in the, the Protestant Bible and number of books in the Catholic Bible. Um, the, the Roman Catholic Church actually uh, accepted into their canon in AD 1546, the, the Apocrypha. Uh, ironically, it was like 29 years after Martin Luther nailed his theses to the door and like all that kind of stuff, saying like these are kind of maybe not uh, biblical doctrines that you're believing in, in some of this. And so then they accepted the Apocrypha into their scriptures. And, and so basically, though, it, it didn't pass the test. And, and the Apocrypha actually doesn't even say, it doesn't even claim to be divinely inspired. And even in, in a certain place in, in 1 Maccabees 9.27, it actually denies that it's the inspired word of God. Uh, and so we can look into some of this and, and realize, like, there are some reasons why it's not accepted. And that doesn't mean they're not helpful books, but they're not on par with reading the actual Word of God. And so sometimes we can get caught up in, in reading books about the Bible, right? We can get caught up in, in reading, uh, maybe it's some author that we like who, who wrote a book about the Bible. But there's nothing that can replace knowing and reading the Bible on our own. Remember, this is a, a uniquely des, uh, designed book, a, a divine inspiration that, that God spoke into being, this, this Word of God, as He carried these authors along by the power of the Holy Spirit. Like, this is a, a unique book. There's something different about the Word of God than, than any other book that has ever been written or will ever be written. And so our approach to the Bible matters. 
our approach to the Word of God will determine our application of it. What we believe about this book matters because it will change how we live our lives. It will change how much we actually go into this book and read it. Instead of just reading a book about the Bible, actually opening the Bible, and, and sometimes, you know, there's, there's some challenging things in here, some things that maybe we don't quite understand and different things like that, but it's not giving up. It's not saying like, oh, that's too tough to understand. Like, I'm just simple-minded. Well, so were the fishermen that followed Jesus. They weren't accepted into the best schools, and yet they could understand the mysteries of God as the Holy Spirit revealed them to him. And so don't let that be a, a crutch or, or something keeping you from, but actually study the Word of God on your own. Actually read the Word of God on your own. It, it's great to be here and to learn uh, from Pastor Jeff and our pastoral team as we preach the Word of God to you, but nothing will replace you getting in the Word yourself studying it on your own, knowing how to, how to navigate through Scripture, where the books of the Bible are, even memorizing the, the books of the Bible and, and knowing all of that. And so we need to approach the Word of God in, in the right way, understanding that, that God wants to make himself known to you through his Word. And the more that you want to know God, the more you need to go to his Word in order to know who he is and see what he's like. So as we go, I want to encourage you to, to think about your approach to the scriptures. To think about the, the way that you think about it. Think about the way you think about the scriptures. Think about the way you feel about the Bible when you, when you consider even getting into it. Consider even reading it. What, what feelings come up? What thoughts come to the surface? What is your approach to the word of God and where did that come from? How did you develop that approach? Is it, is it something that, that somebody taught you about the Word of God? Is it something that maybe over the course of time you began to just believe or understand about the Word of God? Like, how did you get to that approach? And I want to encourage you to just think a little bit more deeply about your approach to Scripture. To think a little bit more about how you understand the, the power and the impact of the Word of God and, and what it can have in your life, if, if you will be willing to read it, to know it, to study it, and to actually live out what the Word of God says. So I want to leave us with a psalm. Looking at the psalmist in, in Psalm 19, David writes this incredible approach to the Word of God. And so I want to leave us with this as, as a, an almost prayer that, that our approach would be this approach. You can actually go to Psalm 119. We're going to look at Psalm 19 at the end here, but Psalm 119 is this incredible book of the Bible, or this incredible chapter of the Bible. It's the longest one in the Bible, and so sometimes we avoid it, but the way that it speaks about the Word of God, you cannot read Psalm 119 and be unaffected by the depth of love that the psalmist has for the Word of God. So Psalm 19 similarly says this, beginning in verse 7. David writes, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are 
radiance, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. And by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Father, we pray that would be our approach to your word. That we would have a reverence and a love for your word. That we would desire it more than we desire gold or honey from the honeycomb that we would see it as sweet and necessary, as this thing that brings life, that satisfies a longing in us to know you more deeply. That is this water to a parched soul, this nourishment to a weary soul in need of rest. We pray that you would help us to revere your word, God. To make the time to study it, to read it, to apply it. I pray that we would trust your word. We would know it for ourselves. Knowing that as we follow your word, we get to walk in your will And that's a wonderful place to be. Father, help us and be our guide. Teach us your word, we pray. Amen.